Well, the year was 1535. An outlaw stepped into a barber shop asking for a haircut and a shave. The barber was simply known as Master Peter. And as he saw the outlaw walk into a shop, he knew that if he turned this outlaw into the authorities, he would receive a handsome sum of money. But the barber couldn't do that. Couldn't turn in his hero. The outlaw was none other than Martin Luther himself, who had actually shown Master Peter the beauty of the gospel, and Master Peter had been saved through the writings and teachings of Martin Luther revealing the glory of the gospel and the word of God. So Martin Luther sat down for a shave, for a haircut, and as Master Peter was shaving Martin's chin, the barber asked, Dear Martin, I wonder if I could ask you for help. For I try to pray every night, but I feel as though my prayers never go further than the ceiling. Dr. Luther, do you think that you could help me learn to pray better? You can just see it, right? Martin Luther sitting back, the foam on his chin with the barber with the razor. Luther carefully and slowly mouthed the words with caution as the blade was up against his neck. What makes a good barber is being focused on the task at hand. <laughs> but after that, Luther told Master Peter this was the best question he had ever received. Luther taught at a seminary. He told Master Peter that, that my students ask me these hypothetical theological questions that pertain to nothing in reality. You ask the best question that there is. So he said, I'll get back to you. And after a few months... Martin Luther returned with a book in his hand, gave it to Master Peter, and said, this will answer your question. The book is called A Simple Way to Pray. You can actually get a copy of that book online. You can Google it, search for it, you can get a copy of it. It was dedicated by Martin Luther to masterful Peter, who wanted to be rich in the best way possible. Martin Luther in this book said, if you want to pray and pray well, the way to do so is, number one, memorize the Lord's Prayer. Number two, memorize the Ten Commandments. Number three, memorize the Apostles' Creed. And then number four, pray through all of those. Not in a rote way, but rather take the first line as you've memorized it, and pray through the first line. Take the second line, pray through it. Take the third line and pray through it. Imagine having a book given to you by Martin Luther in answer to your question. That'd be pretty cool. I can do you one better. Imagine having a book written by God himself given to you to teach you how to pray. That's what we hold in our hands. That's why when we study the book of Daniel, as we've been studying the last couple of weeks, seeing Daniel chapter 9 and his prayer to his God, we're being taught how to pray right in front of our eyes. So if you have your copy of God's word, Daniel chapter 9 is where we are. And I want us to focus in on the last portion of Daniel's prayer this morning. Last week, we saw Daniel praying and in looking at his prayer in depth, we saw four aspects of prayer and four aspects of confession. Four aspects of prayer. Prayer flows from studying the scriptures. Prayer begins by humbly entering God's presence. Prayer involves adoring the goodness of God, and prayer must be characterized by 
honest and full confession of sin. Then we looked at confession and the four aspects of true confession. True confession of sins begins by identifying the nature of sin. It continues by accepting the just consequences of sin. It always clings to God's forgiveness and it affirms God's faithfulness even in his judgment. Those are the eight things that we learned last week. And this week we will now turn to verse 15 through 19, the end of Daniel's prayer. And it leads us to a question. If we come before the Lord boldly in our praying, if we come before him with confession and we stare at our sin for what it truly is, we know we are a sinful people, then the next question I have is, then on what basis are we able to even ask God for anything? Because we are such a sinful people. How can we appeal to God with any confidence that he cares to act for us on our behalf because of how sinful we are? How can we have any confidence, any hope that our prayers will actually accomplish anything that God even cares, that he even hears because of how sinful we are? I think in these five verses, we'll find five very hopeful reasons that we can be confident that our prayers are being heard by our God. Let's read these verses together. Daniel chapter 9, verse 15. So now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand, and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. O oh Lord, in accordance with all of your righteousness, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because, uh, for because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all of those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your slave Listen to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplication before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your abundant compassion. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, give heed and take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Father, we thank you for this window into Daniel's heart. We thank you for his incredible trust in you. We thank you for the hope that he gives us that while he is praying and confessing sin, admitting the shame that he and all of Israel is bearing because of their sin and their wickedness, at the exact same time, he comes boldly before you to ask to petition, to plead with you that you would act. Father, that seems absolutely impossible. Even for us here today, we would say we are such a sinfully wretched people. We are so depraved. We don't even know the, the depravity of our own sinfulness. 
And I know that that leads many of us to say, it's not even worth bothering to talk to you because I am such a wretched sinner. There's no reason that you would ever listen to me. There's no reason you would ever act. There's no reason that I have any hope or confidence that you would work on my behalf. Why would you? Look at who I am. Father, I pray today that in Daniel's prayer, we would see the gospel. That he does not come before you asking you to act on the basis of who he is, but on the basis of who you are. And may you be the anchor of everything that we do, of all of our hope, of all of our confidence. So Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help to see these realities and then we need your help to live them out in our praying. So God, be our help. We cling to you. We have no reliance in ourselves. We have no hope in ourselves. We cling to Christ. And it is in his gospel that we stand. So glorify yourself. Work in our midst by your amazing grace. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. There are five verses that we're going to study. And in these five verses, we will see five reasons that we can have confidence in our praying and our petition before God. Five reasons that we can be confident in our prayers to God. Number one. We can be confident because of how God has worked in the past. We can be confident because of how God has worked in the past. This is verse 15. Daniel transitions. Remember, he's kind of praying that acts sort of prayer. Adoration, he began with adoration. Confession, a lot of confession. There's a little bit of thanksgiving in there. Not much, that's the T in acts. And now he moves to supplication. He's bringing his plea and it kind of transitions there in verse 15 with and now or so now. This is the transitional moment when Daniel's moving to petition from confession. And he begins by reciting God's past redemption. He goes back to the Exodus. He says, so now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand. You brought your people out. You saved your people. You redeemed your people. Not because of anything that they did because of your amazing grace and compassion and mercy. He recites God's past redemption. The Exodus happened in 1446 BC and almost a thousand years later in the 500s BC, people are still talking about this amazing event, the Exodus where God's people were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 63 verses 11 through 13, God's people remembered the days of old of Moses where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name and led them through the depths? Remembering past mercy enables us to gain hope for the future. And so Daniel begins by saying, you showed us mercy in the past, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Please do that again. He's asking God to do that again. Be gracious again. Deliver us again. You've done it before. Please do it again. And I wonder how often in your praying do you live out this discipline of remembering? How often do you call back, God, you did this in the past. You proved yourself faithful time and time again in the past. And now I'm hoping and trusting for your faithfulness in the future. 
This is a pattern even of the psalmist. Turn to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. This is all over the psalms, but just one psalm that we can turn to. Psalm 77, this is a psalm of Asaph. And he begins by saying in verse one, my voice rises to God, I'm crying aloud, he'll hear me. I'm in the day of my distress and I'm seeking the Lord. My soul is refusing to be comforted. I'm disturbed. You've held my eyelids open. I'm troubled. All of these different things. He's going through a lot. He asks, God, are you going to reject me forevermore? Verse seven, are you never going to be favorable to me ever again? Has your loving kindness ceased? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Are you angry with me so much so that you will never show me compassion again? This is what he's asking as he's praying. And then verse 11, he answers, I will remember the deeds of my God. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all of your works. I will remember, I will call to mind the things that you have done in answer to my questions. Have you ceased to be faithful? No, you've always been faithful. Have you ceased to be compassionate? No, you've always been compassionate. And he goes down, verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You've made your strength known among the peoples. You have by your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and of Joseph. He goes back to the Exodus. That's what Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9. Before he moves to a full petition before the Lord, he says, God, you've worked this way in the past, and I'm pleading with you to do it again for us now. We can have confidence in how God will work in the future because of how he's worked in the past. Hebrews says he will never change, and therefore he will always be the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can be confident in our praying before the Lord because, number one, of the way God has worked in the past. Number two, we can be confident in our prayers before God and our petitions before him that he will hear and he will act. Number two, because of God's righteous character. Because of God's righteous character. This is in verse 15 through 16, back in Daniel 9. Daniel says, we have sinned, end of verse 15. We've sinned and we've acted wickedly. So that's not the basis of his petition going before the Lord. Not, I'm not, he's not saying I'm righteous, I'm good. So work for me and act on my behalf because of how amazing I am. No, he's saying we've acted wickedly, we've sinned. But then he says this, verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness. Not in accordance with our righteousness because we have none, we're wicked. But in accordance with your righteousness, he pleads with God on the basis of God's character. God in his perfect righteousness is trustworthy to act righteously. The righteousness of God is both the basis for the judgment that Israel is receiving because God is a righteous God. He cannot let sin continue. He promised to judge them in Deuteronomy 28 and here the judgment has happened. But Daniel also says the righteousness of God is the basis now for the forgiveness that they're going to receive. Now, because the judgment has been happening to Israel and has been completed, now we're going to move to blessing. Now we're going to move to God's forgiveness. This is what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 2. Comfort my people. Give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So comfort God's people because judgment has been, has been given and now it's gone. The judgment has ended. 
So Daniel says, because of your righteous judgment and now your righteous compassion, your righteous mercy, you have promised that this is going to happen. And so he pleads with God on the basis of God's character. David Helm says it this way, Daniel's confidence does not rest on the godliness of his people, nor in their ability to make a fresh start with God. Rather, he rests his appeal on the gracious character of God alone, who for his own sake had determined to make a name for himself from Jerusalem. And Leon Wood writes in his commentary on Daniel, Daniel did not claim that God owed Israel deliverance, for the Israelites deserved only the punishment that they were experiencing. One might paraphrase the thought, the, the idea that in accordance with all of your righteous acts, you could paraphrase it as, quote, according to your righteous acts in history, which included the gracious deliverance of your undeserving people then, do the same now. Respond in righteous judgment towards us in giving us that judgment and then in righteous mercy and compassion now that the judgment has been handed down. So we can come to God on the basis of his faithfulness in the past, how he's worked in the past. We can come before God with confidence as we pray on the basis of his righteous character in the present. Number three, a third reason that we have to be confident in our praying before the Lord is because of the glory of God's name. The glory of God's name. This is the end of verse 16 into verse 17. Daniel says, in accordance with all your righteous judgments, verse 16, let all of your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your, your people have become a reproach to all of those around us. So now listen to the prayer of your slave. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. So he says, not for our sake, but for your sake. We will reap the benefits, yes, but this is primarily about your glory on display. There's a reproach on your people, God, and so because of the reproach that's on your people, your glory has been dragged through the mud. We have shame, verse eight, there's open shame. Everybody knows that. We are an object of scorn, open scorn before the nations. The people of Israel were a laughingstock before the nations. The nations looked on them with scorn because they were no different than the world. They claimed to believe and follow the one true God and yet they look no different than the world. They're held captive by a pagan nation. And so Daniel pleads with God. God acts quickly to bring Israel's captivity to an end because every day that we stay stuck in exile and our temple lays in ruins, every day that God's people are living in captivity under a pagan nation, it's bringing more shame to you, God. So he's pleading with God on the basis of the zeal of God's name, the zeal of God's glory. This is such an interesting reality. God is willing in order to accomplish his own purposes with his own people, he's willing to allow his glory to be tarnished. He's concerned about his glory, yes, but he's willing for a time to allow that glory to be dragged through the mud in order for a greater glory to happen, for his love and his compassion to be put on display. You see this in the personal work of Jesus. Jesus was willing to become one of us, to enter our world, to, to live as one of us in order to accomplish redemption. He humbled himself for 33 years, he lived among us in all of the shame that it means to be a human. 
Think of all the shame that he specifically endured. He's born into a situation in which his entire life, uh, people are raising the question about the legitimacy of his birth. They claim that he's an illegitimate child. You have his own family that curses him, that doesn't believe in him, that rejects him. You have the religious leaders that are telling the, the masses and the crowds, don't follow him. He, he's doing the works that he's doing by the power of the devil. On and on the list goes. And yet Jesus was willing to wear that dishonor and that shame and that reproach in order to take away our reproach. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way in his commentary. Quote, Daniel appeals to Yahweh's reputation. Of course, the Lord, quote unquote, ruined his own reputation when he gave Judas king and the temple vessels into Nebuchadnezzar's control back in chapter one. It was part of his judgment on Judah, but as is so often, the media didn't get it right. The popular interpretation was that Yahweh was simply another little league deity, unable to keep his provincial people from being steamrolled by mighty Babylon and her victorious gods, Marduk and Nebo. Babylon's help in ages past, their hopes for years to come. Yahweh seemed to be just another poor choice in the world's cafeteria of divine has-beens. Daniel pleads with Yahweh to reverse all of this, to restore his own reputation and his name. And then Davis ends this way. Genuine believers always have this concern close to their hearts. I wonder, do you have that concern close to your heart? When the world around us is laughing at our God, do we plead, God, work in such a way where your glory is on display, that your name is not tarnished anymore? They're laughing at Yahweh, and that makes Daniel sorrowful and sick. Dale Ralph Davis says, Daniel batters heaven with appeals to God's honor. God, for your name's sake, do this. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 106. Verses seven through eight, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant loving kindness, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, so they did nothing that was profitable. They did nothing good. Nevertheless, God, you saved them for the sake of your name, that you might make your power known. You didn't save them on the basis of their goodness, but on the basis of your amazing glory. This makes me think of Moses. Turn back to Exodus Exodus chapter 32. Moses does this in the book of Exodus. After the golden calf incident, you remember uh, Moses walks down the mountain, shatters the uh, two tablets of stone, sees the people of Israel and their uh, wickedness, their idolatry, their perversion. And he walks away, Moses walks away and and God says, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to destroy them all. Verse 11, uh, Exodus chapter 32, verse 11. This is how Moses responds. You could go back and start in verse 10. This is God's response. Now, leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and I may consume them. I'm going to kill all of them except for you and make a great nation out of you. And here's Moses' answer, verse 11. Moses entreated the favor of the Lord and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to 
kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent concerning doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. And you said to them, I'm going to multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. All of this land, which I've spoken to you, I will give it to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. So what Moses is saying is, if you destroy them, which you're totally fine to do because of our wickedness, but if you do that, now you'll bear the reproach on your own name because the Egyptians will say, well, they at least survived when they were our slaves. The people of Israel were fine in our protection and in our captivity. And then they go out and they're following their God and their God destroys them all. Moses says, don't, don't do this for the sake of your name, not because of who we are. We deserve it because of who you are. So, verse 14, Yahweh relents concerning the harm which he said he would do to his people. That's how Moses responds. Moses responds the way Daniel responds. Daniel's just taking his cue from Moses. God, you could totally do this, but if you do this, I don't want your name to be tarnished any more than it already is. So, verse 17, back in Daniel chapter 9. So, God, listen to the prayer of your slave Listen to his supplications for your sake, O Lord. Let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. That reminds me of Numbers chapter 6, verse 25. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. God, act in a way where your glory is seen in your people until the nations see and they are blown away by how awesome you are, O God. Daniel has confidence in his praying before the Lord and we can as well. Number one, because of how God has worked in the past. Number two, because of God's righteous character. Number three, because of the glory of God's name, come boldly before the Lord saying, God, work for the the sake of your name, the glory of your name. Number four, a fourth reason is because of God's amazing mercy and compassion. We can have confidence in our petitions being heard by God and God acting in our place for us and on our behalf because of his amazing mercy and compassion. This is verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. There's that your name again. Your name's going to show up over and over again. But then he says this, do this, middle of verse 18, because we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own. So he's very specific to say, God, please act, not because of who we are. We have no righteousness of our own. Act on account of your abundant compassion. He's saying, God, I ask you to do this because it's your nature to show compassion. And I desperately need your compassion. There's nothing in us that would make God do this. If there's anything in us that would make God give us grace and give us compassion, it's the sheer fact that we are made in his image and he loves us. But even that was given to us by him, right? Even us being made in his image, that was given to us by him. So there's literally nothing in us on our own that would make God say, I have to love them. And so Daniel says, and this is not in reference to salvation. Uh, this is how salvation begins, right? We cling to Christ. This is Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer you. I'm bankrupt. You know, we can turn out our pockets and say, God, I have no moral currency to earn your favor. I've got nothing but I'm pleading nonetheless. How is that possible? It's possible because we're not pleading on the basis of our character, but the basis of his character. We're not pleading on the basis of who we are, but because of who he is. And that is salvation and the entirety of the Christian walk. It's full dependence on God. It's 
renouncing any form of self-reliance and saying, God, I need you and you alone. A.W. Pink says, prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude. It's an attitude of dependency upon God. But I think our struggle tends to be that in our dependency, we say, God, I am needy. I come before you having nothing. I have absolutely nothing to give you. And we come before him dependent. But then I think as we come dependent, knowing we just stare at our neediness, we stare at our inability to give him anything. And I think we come before him and we say, because I have nothing, I don't think I'm going to get anything. Because I have nothing to offer you, we know our neediness. Because I have nothing to offer you, I don't think I'm going to get anything from you. And this is the topsy-turvy world of the beauty of the gospel. In fact, we can come before God and say, because I have nothing, I expect to get everything. Because of your amazing kindness, because of your amazing grace. I love the way this is lived out in a beautiful story of Charles Spurgeon and George Mueller. You know, both of those names, Charles Spurgeon, known primarily for being a preacher, pastor. George Mueller, known primarily for being a prayer warrior and the head of the orphanage. Charles Spurgeon actually had an orphanage too. He ran an orphanage. Um, he was going to Bristol in hopes to raise 300 pounds, which in that day was a whole lot of money. And he was trying to raise it in about a month. And in about a week, he got the full sum of 300 pounds. So he goes home. Uh, the night before he goes home, he's praying. and He's asking the Lord, thanking the Lord for giving him that amount of money so that he can go back to the orphanage, take care of the kids in the orphanage. And as he's praying that night, he felt prompted by God to give the money to George Mueller. Spurgeon said, uh, oh no, Lord. <laughs> I need it for my own dear orphans. But Spurgeon couldn't shake the idea that God wanted him to part with it. So he said, yes, Lord, I will. And only when he said that could he find rest that night. The next morning, he woke up with great peace in his heart, made his way to Mueller's orphanage, found Mueller on his knees praying. Charles Spurgeon put his hand on his shoulder, said, Brother Mueller, I've come to give you 300 pounds. George, he said, quote, God has told me to give you the 300 pounds that I've collected. Mueller got up from his knees and exclaimed, Oh, my dear brother, I've just been asking him for exactly that amount. The two servants of the Lord wept and rejoiced together. When Spurgeon returned to London, he found an envelope on his desk containing more than 300 pounds. The Lord had returned the 300 pounds that he had obediently given to Mueller with 300 shillings of interest. And Spurgeon blurted out what he had heard from another brother. I shovel out and God shovels in and God has a much bigger shovel than I do. I wonder if we, if we think that way when we pray. How big do you imagine God's shovel to be? And I think that if we're honest, we think that his shovel is as big as our ability to come before him and ask appropriately. His shovel is as big as our moral currency would demand it to be. That's not how Daniel prays. Daniel says, I've got nothing. And I throw myself at your mercy. This is the beauty of the gospel. Sometimes I think we forget how truly wonderful, and to use that in the actual definition of that word, filled with wonder. 
how truly wonderful it is to be in the family of God. Why in the world would the God of the universe, creator, created, creator, holy, completely sinful, holy, infinite, finite. I mean, we could not get further apart from who we are and who God is. Why would the God of the universe, holy in all of his workings, look upon us completely sinful, wretched, and depraved and say, I want to be associated with them. I want them in my family. I want my name attached to their name and their name attached to mine. Any of you have ever been in a situation where somebody around you does something not looked upon favorably and you kind of want to distance yourself from them? Kind of want to let things blow over. They, they have a bad reputation. I don't really want to hang out with them. And then let the situation blow over and then maybe I'll get back together with them. Maybe I'll talk with them again. Maybe we'll be friends again. But I don't really want to be associated with them the way that they are. And we keep them at arm's distance. And I understand there's Proverbs that talk about that. You don't want to be involved in bad uh, relationships that corrupt good morals. I get that. I understand that. How unbelievable is it that God looks upon us and says, you know what? I want you in my family. He wants to be associated with us. He wants us. That's why Daniel can say, I'm asking you to act and I know that you will because it's not, a, not based on us. It's not uh, primarily based on anything we could do. It's all about you. And it's all about your grace. Daniel comes before God with confidence that his supplications will be heard. Number one, because of how God has worked in the past. Number two, because of God's own righteous character. Number three, because of the glory of God's name. Number four, because of God's amazing mercy and compassion. And finally, number five, because of God's promise to his people. God's promise to his people. This is verse 19. Oh Lord, listen. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, give heed and take action and we're going to see a couple of things that pop up again. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay. For the name's sake that you have your glory to be seen and savored. Don't delay because your city and your people are called by your name. So again, your name is on the line here, God. But then he also says, act for the sake of your city and your people. Your city. Remember, we looked at this last week. Daniel knew, according to Jeremiah's prophecies that God had given, that 70 years were decreed. There would be 70 years of exile, 70 years of captivity. We're almost done with those 70 years. And Daniel's saying, you promised your city would be rebuilt. Your temple would be rebuilt. You promised. And I'm just praying that that promise happens. Sinclair Ferguson points out that in the end, Daniel's just talking to God like a child talks to his parents. God, you promised. You promised. Ferguson says, quote, prayer asks in unwavering trust, for what God has already promised to do. Prayer asks in unwavering trust for what God has already promised to do. Daniel is praying really through not only Jeremiah, but also 1 Kings chapter 8. We don't have time to turn there, but just write it down. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 through 53. It's the end of 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon is dedicating the temple. And Solomon says, in essence, if we disobey, you will lead us into exile and captivity to a pagan nation. If we disobey you, God, if we turn from this temple, we turn from your name and we disobey, 
God, you're going to punish us. You're going to discipline us. You're going to bring judgment upon us by taking us away. But if we seek you and we turn to you and that punishment ends, you're going to bring us back and you're going to give us our city back. So he's praying, Daniel's praying through that. God, the seven years are over. You promised in 1 Kings 8, you promised in Jeremiah. It's time to go back. Do, Do you pray this way? I wonder if you pray the promises of God back to God. I was reading in my Bible reading this year so far. Turn to Genesis 32. I saw this just leap out of the page in Genesis 32. Going through parts of the Old Testament, parts of the New Testament, a psalm and a proverb a day in my Bible reading in the morning. Genesis 32, you have Jacob. Remember the whole Jacob and Esau thing where Jacob stole from Esau. Esau hated him, said, I'm going to kill you. Jacob runs away. It's been, it's been years Jacob sees Esau, says, he's probably going to kill me, and I'm really scared that he's going to kill me. If you know the way the story ends, Esau doesn't kill him. He says, no, I'm your brother. I love you. I forgive you. But Jacob, Genesis 32, beginning in verse 9, Jacob says this to God, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh who said to me, return to your land and to your kin, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the truth which you have shown to your slave. I'm unworthy. I mean, notice the similarities between what he's praying before God and what Daniel prays. I'm not worthy. I have nothing. With my staff alone, I crossed the Jordan. And now I've become two camps. I had nothing. And then you prostrated me in all these different ways with uh, uh, the people that you've given to me, my family. I have all these kids, all these cattle, all these sheep and goats. Then he prays, verse 11, deliver me. I pray from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I fear him, lest he come and strike me down with the mothers and the children. And now he prays based on God's promise. Verse 12, because you said, I will surely prosper you. I will make your seed as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he's saying, God, I've got nothing. I'm unworthy. I deserve nothing. I've been given nothing. Uh, I've given you nothing. I've been given everything that I have. I have nothing. That you have acted so graciously to me, not because of anything that I am, but only because of who you are. And he says, I'm bringing a petition. Please don't let Esau kill me. And then he throws in there, you promised that I was going to have this massive uh, descendants that just generation after generation growing, multiplying, that are beyond the number of uh, the, the grains of sand on the seashore, beyond the number of stars in the sky. You promised that. So God, if I die, that's not going to happen. And you've broken your promise. So on the basis of the promise that you've given, I'm praying that you would act. That's what Daniel's doing. Daniel went into captivity in 605 BC. Jeremiah said that the captivity would be 70 years. He's writing now in 535 BC, or 538 BC rather. So we've got three years to the seven years. 70 years from 605 BC would be 535 BC. And Daniel's writing three years prior to that, 538 BC. And he's saying, we've got three years. We're, We're just about there. And so this raises a question. If Daniel knows this is a promise from God, God already said this is going to happen. If Daniel knows that, then why pray about it? Why say, God, please act when God already said I'm going to act? Daniel's pleading based on the promise. He's asking God to do what he already said he would do. Does that seem odd? Sometimes there are theological circles 
that in a hyper way would say things like, well, since God said it's going to happen, I don't really need to worry about it because God's sovereign over all things. He said it was going to happen and I don't need to worry about it. Often attributed to you know, hyper-Calvinists who would say God's in control of every atom in the world. I agree with that. That's biblical. God's in control of all things. He's predestined things. He's sovereign. He's ordaining everything. I absolutely believe that's biblical. And therefore, sometimes people push that in a hyper-Calvinistic camp. They push that to say, therefore, I don't really need to do anything because God's going to do it all anyway. He promised that it was going to happen. He can't go back on his promise. Therefore, we don't really need to do anything. We're not involved in much because God's doing it all. He promised it. He's going to make it happen. Unfortunately, the guy that this theology is named after, John Calvin himself, knew better. He doesn't agree with that. In his two-volume commentary on the book of Daniel, Calvin has a 50-page discussion on this prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And he says this, quote, The faithful do not so acquiesce in the promises of God as to grow torpid or sluggish and become idle, slothful, and lazy through the certainty of their persuasion that God will perform his promises. So he's saying faithful believers, believers, they are not slothful in praying they're not slothful in believing that the promises of God are going to happen simply because they're certain that they will happen. But rather, quote, they're stimulated to pray. The true proof of faith is the assurance that when we pray, that God will really perform what he has promised to us. Nothing can be better for us than to ask for what he's already promised. Another commentator says, what scripture says is what God says and what God says will happen. So we should pray that God would make it happen. We should be involved in the means of God making it happen. God uses means. There's a symbiotic relationship between divine sovereignty and our prayers and our works. They fit together. We don't look at the Bible and go, well, God promised it. And so I can sit in my lazy boy and just watch God accomplish it. We look and we say, God promised it. Therefore, I can be involved in making it happen because God promised it's going to happen. So we pray with confidence because of God's promises. But that's not where it ends. It's God's promises to his people, to his people. Daniel says, don't delay because of your city, your promises about your city, and because of your people. You love your people. They're called by your name. You love us. The promises that God makes are not made to just nobody in particular. They're made to a specific people. And those people are precious. If we had time, we could turn to Exodus 33. You could just write it down. Exodus 33, verses 12 through 17. This is a chapter after Moses prays. Moses had prayed and said, God, don't kill your people for your namesake. And God says, I won't, but I'll leave you. Chapter 33 is him saying, I'm done. You can live, but I'm going. And, and Moses says, if you go and we remain, we don't have your presence, uh, we're, we're going to die. We need you. We want you. We, we want to be with you. We want to go where you go. And throughout that whole section, he constantly goes back to God. How can you abandon your people? You love us. You delivered us. You can't abandon us, your people. God has graciously called you and me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has brought you into his family. You are called by his name. You are his people. And so you can pray with confidence, knowing that God the Father already crushed his son for you because he loves you. He already spilled the blood of his son 
so that you could be brought into his family. That's the whole argument that Paul gives in Romans chapter 8. If God the Father did that, the hardest thing by crushing his son, not holding him back, but delivering him up for us all, how then will he not freely give us all things? He's going to give us everything. If he's done the hardest thing, anything is easy for God to do after that. So we pray with confidence, not because of anything that we have in ourselves. Again, you can pray with confidence because you are a child of God, but that's not a work that you accomplished. You did not get yourself adopted. God and God alone did the work. So we've already seen in this chapter how prayer flows from the scriptures and how it leads to genuine confession. But this morning, we now see that confidence, as we move to petition, we can genuinely have humble confidence going into God's presence with our petitions, not because of who we are, but because of what he has done. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of who he is. That's the only way that we have to enter in with confidence. Do you pray this way? Do you pray this way? Do you pray in your praying and in bringing your petitions before God? Do you pray based on how God has worked in the past? Do you pray? Do you remind God based off of how he's worked in the past? I know you've done this in the past and I'm asking that you do it again for me. Do you pray based off of the character that God has given? Righteousness. Do you pray based off of the glory of God's name? Is God's glory and the glory of his name, the fame and the renown of his name in the world? Is that a burden on your heart? Do you pray because of God's amazing mercy and compassion? I have nothing to offer you. How often do we pray, okay, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. God, I promise I won't do this again, or I'll start doing this. And if I do, please act for me. It's just this transactional, I do something, and I'm kind of making, forcing you to do something, God. That's not the way we are called to pray. And finally, do you pray based off of God's promises, blood-bought promises to you and to me, Because we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Do you pray this way? I I just, I wonder if these five aspects are involved. Every time you're seeking the Lord with petitions, pray these inside of your petitions. You know who did pray this way? Was our Savior. If we had more time, we could turn to a number of different passages to see Jesus and the way that he prays. He prayed This way, he prayed based off of God's character and his faithfulness in the past. He prayed based off of God's righteousness for the zeal of God's name. He prayed based off of God's abundant mercy and compassion and based off of the promises that God had given to his people. You see it in Gethsemane. You see it all over the place. And brothers and sisters, this is truly unbelievable news. He didn't just pray that way in the past. The Bible says he is still praying that way in the present for you and for me. John 17, you remember his prayer, the high priestly prayer, where he prays for you and for me, and he prays that we'd be unified, that we would understand the love of God, that we would know the exact same love that God the Father has for God the Son, that God the Father has for you and for me. He prays for us, Romans 8, verse 34, he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us right now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That's just one of the best phrases in the Bible. There's no way he can't save you. That's what that's saying. He can save you and then some. 
He has so much saving power. He could just save you. And he has so much power left over to save anything he wants to. He can save to the uttermost. Why? Because he's always living to make intercession for you. Brothers and sisters, if you ever feel far from God, if you ever feel like, I don't know if he sees, I don't know if he cares, I don't know if he's near, turn to Hebrews 7.25, read that promise, memorize that promise. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, always living to make intercession for you. This should drive us to our knees in gratitude just absolutely blown away by grace. There's no reason whatsoever that we have done anything to deserve, earn, to gain this favor from God. This is all God being so kind. It should drive us to our knees in absolute humble adoration and thanksgiving. And then while we're there, it should drive us to supplication, knowing that we have this loving of a God, this loving of a Father, It should drive us to plead with him, to bring our petition to him, boldly approaching his throne. Corey Ten Boom said, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. And when you do, you know that when you pray, not only can you pray confidently, but you can confidently pray knowing that God hears and that he acts, and he acts in amazing ways in Daniel chapter 9, but that's for next week. Father, thank you so much for how approachable you are as our Heavenly Father. We have no reason whatsoever in and of ourselves to come before you and to plead with you. It's only by your character, by your grace, by your mercy that we can come before you. We have nothing in ourselves. And so we come before you empty-handed, We plead on the basis of your righteousness, on the basis of your character, on the basis of your faithfulness and your promises, on the basis of your mercy and compassion, and on the basis of you being a loving and gracious king. God, work and act. May we pray that way today. May we pray and bring our petitions to you, not based off of our goodness, not transactionally, but on the basis of your character, on the basis of who you are. And may we boldly expect you to answer and respond, even as we'll see next week, Lord willing. God, confirm all these realities, all these truths to our hearts, even now as we sing. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.